0: I'm Christopher Leiden, and this is Open Source. On the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, we're face-to-face, almost, with an American political type that's gone missing in our third century. Check this resume. He's principled, he's prepared, a two-fisted aristocrat networked with farmers and workers, a thinker and writer, at risk, without fear, talking ideas, and enacting them, getting results. He's a man with no interest in money, no envy of riches or rank. He's got a Harvard education, but no profession, no real career. He's a Republican, he'll tell you, who takes self-government seriously and the personal virtues that sustain it. The hero in this podcast is Samuel Adams of Boston, revived after two and a half centuries by the magical biographer Stacy Schiff. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia saw Sam Adams as the man who lifted a tax protest up to the launch of a new nation, a bigger figure even than his second cousin, John Adams, who was the main author of the U.S. Constitution. Stacey Schiff, in this book, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams, dare I say you've given us a dead white patriarch for all seasons and incredibly alive for today.
1: He is a dead white lost patriarch, but I also felt as if sometimes the dead white men can go missing. And it was surprising to me that we knew so little of someone who was hailed by his contemporaries as the prime mover of the revolution.
2: Yeah. For me, he's right about this moment and addressing the uneasiness of the 2020s, entirely different from his. But... Don't you wish he was available to run in 2024? Seriously. I so, I so
1: wish he were around, if only to distill first principles. I and mean, he had this really uncanny ability to put ideas into words, to pin yes, those words exactly. to the Yes, He's page. an alchemist. He's an alchemist entirely with language. And he not only is able to single-handedly kind of massage the vocabulary, but also really even to change the grammar and to sink those ideas into the (laughs) drinking water. Especially for us today, consuming media at the rate we consume it, that just does seem to me to be an extraordinary outsized feat.
2: His orchestration, invisibly, of feeling on the street in Boston in the 1770s is simply uncanny. He's a master, I, I figured out from you, of these dualisms He's a perfect contrast with the Virginians when it comes to writing the Constitution. He's the son of a Puritan deacon. At the same time, he's a, clearly a figure of the Enlightenment, of the Jeffersonian values, of Benjamin Franklin Enlightenment, of rights, of individualism.
1: You see what the reading list at Harvard College is in these years. He's a graduate of the class of 1740. And these are years when the ideas of John Locke and John Calvin are sort of taught side by side. (laughs) The best way, really, to chart that world in transition... I'm
2: thinking Cotton Mather and Benjamin Franklin.
1: Yes, very much. The best way for me to chart that sort of world in transition was to look at the Harvard master's theses because we do have the subjects of those years. And to see, on the one hand, how very close these men were to us, because they're asking the same questions we ask today. You know, Do the ends justify the means was a Harvard Mm. thesis question. Um, Do you meet your friends in heaven? I think that's an eternal question. Is there a
2: justifiable rebellion against constituted power? Well,
1: that was Samuel Adams's question, which was an unusual question at the time. Hmm. But you also see a whole set of questions which indicate how far away this world was from us. You see a lot of people who are writing On, you know, are the Native Americans the lost tribe of Israel? And um, you know, is is the Pope the Antichrist? A lot of questions were being asked that weren't going to be asked fifty years hence. But Adams, very much for family reasons, is on the bandwagon of this question of liberty and the enforcement of American rights, and has a Hmm. deep-seated sensitivity to the invasion of those rights. But you picked up on something else in your introduction, which I think we tend to forget and is really crucial to the alchemy, as you put it. He's a man of great privilege. He's a man born to wealth. Right. Who
2: downwardly mobile. Da- from that, so downwardly from that start. mobile. He is the
1: poster child for downwardly mobile, which was a very unusual thing to be in 18th century Boston, <laughs> much less 18th century America. This was a hard driving, industrious, aspirational town. And here's Samuel Adams with no profession. But he's able, because of that, spends a lot of time in the streets as a tax collector and as a minor town official, mm-hmm. but he knows the men in power, and he's able to connect high and low in a way which I think few people would have been able to do. And I think that kind of greases the wheels in a way for, um, for much of the writing and for much of the, of the politicking.
2: You mentioned the aspirational town. A quick digression. I'm amazed how much of Samuel Adams's Boston is still here reading your book. A lot of it, the architecture, Faneuil Hall, that Old South Meeting House where you spoke about the book, the Old State House, the Old North Church, King's Chapel, not to mention Boston Common without the cows, um, but even the Latin schools. Boston Latin, Roxbury Latin where I went to school and Joseph Warren, hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill, went too. I mean, Suddenly, this is very much alive and very different from a lot of this country.
1: Very different because Boston has done such a good job of holding on to that heritage. It gave me chills to be speaking in the Old South Meeting House last night. I mean, wow. I've spent so much time thinking about that You're space. You're me chills. 4,000 people
2: at a meeting in the 1770s in that
1: space. So you realize how loud and boisterous <laughs> and crowded that room would have been during the team meetings or during the meetings after the Boston Massacre, exactly, when Adams was playing his pivotal role. But the preservation is extraordinary, as is the tenor the town in some way I still think you can feel the texture of of old Boston.
2: This is extraordinary and I felt it in your book on the witches Salem witch trials, Cape Ann, Essex County That air, the wind, the something or other is still recognizable. I
1: I will say it's easier in the case of Samuel Adams than it was with Salem because we have newspapers. And it is Mm. amazing what you can glean from an 18th century newspaper in terms of the passions and the preoccupations and the sound and the smell of the town. And I didn't have that for Salem. I had to sort of infer that from ministers' diaries and from court testimonies, much of it from prior court testimony, in fact, where you can see who's suing whom and why. But the newspapers are really, in terms of granular detail, are just extraordinary.
2: I want to know, how many of those newspapers did you read, including Adams's advertiser, his many pseudonyms? Pindex, Vortex, whatever it was, Latin names.
1: The short answer is I think I read too many. When I started the research, I proudly announced to Joe Ellis that I was going to read all the Boston newspapers from 1764 to 1776. And he said, have a lovely time. I'll see you in two decades. And I think he was right. So I ended up reading the full run of Adams's newspaper, The Independent Advertiser from the 1740s, and then all of the Boston Gazette and all of the Boston Evening Post. And there were a few other things, the Massachusetts spy here and there, some of the opposition right. papers. But it was really those two full runs, Adams is writing primarily for the Gazette and the Boston Evening Post. And the task of identifying the pseudonyms really pretty much belongs to those two papers.
2: I, I would like to suggest that Samuel Adams almost won the war before Concord and Lexington in the jousting with the Brits in the newspaper. It was a real war of words there, went on from the Tea Party to Concord and Lexington, and he won it in that battlefield. But first, just framing it, was he the founder that mattered after all? Long in in the shadows, but... He instigated, in many ways, the Tea Party, though it's hard to find him actually there. He was the reason that Paul Revere went on the midnight ride to Lexington on the 18th of April, 75. Hardly a man is now alive and all that. He was the man above all, and I think this is what Jefferson tipped his hat to, the man who turned a tax protests, Stamp Act, Tea Taxes, and all that sort of thing, not just into a protest, but a momentous insurrection of colonists against Imperial England. Nothing quite like it ever before.
1: I I, guess I would answer your question two ways. Certainly in the mind of Crown officials, he is the greatest menace. He's the person for whom the arrest warrant goes out along with John Hancock. He's the most wanted man in America because he's seen to be the greatest troublemaker. In the mind of the then royal governor, Thomas Hutchinson, who is really his nemesis for all these years, Mm -hmm. he is the first, Adams is the first to advocate for independence. And I'm not really sure Hutchinson is correct on that count. It it Mm. may indeed have been what he felt. Adams perhaps was advocating more for some kind of redress rather than revolution for most of these years. Um, But in the eyes of Thomas Hutchinson, he is certainly the greatest menace. You can see Hutchinson stuttering on the page when he has to write about Adams. Mm. He's crossing out much more when he writes about (laughs) Adams than about anyone else. He's clearly addled by this man. And the two of them have been at it for years. I mean, Adams is running circles around poor Thomas Hutchinson, who's trying very hard Mm. to do his job. He's a very conscientious public servant, and he's utterly deaf to Samuel Adams's ideas and grievances. But I would also say that in his writings, Adams does best articulate the real essence of republicanism. And that is what Thomas Jefferson really picks up on, is that this person has given voice um, to those finding ideals better than anyone else whom Jefferson can really point to. And he addresses his 1800 inauguration speech to Samuel Adams privately. He writes Adams and says, I wrote that speech with you in mind. And it's shocking when you think about it to suddenly see Adams in the background. And Jefferson sends Adams the speech and says, you know, I wrote this, hoping it was true to your principles as you've articulated them. And do you have any advice for us and for this nascent republic? Oh it's just an extraordinary deferential letter.
2: we got to talk about Republican values. It always intrigues me. Gary Hart, in our time, talked about Republican values. It's never quite clear what the catalog of values is, but there's this emphasis on virtue, personal virtue, of a moral political entity Finding moral leaders, and it's kind of sounds amazing. quaint, doesn't it? Well, it sounds quaint in our politics today, that is just buried in money and greed and patronage. These people believe in standing up for good things. It's it's shocking.
1: I think you could say this was a universal. Certainly, I mean, Ben Franklin, John Adams, Samuel Adams, Jefferson, all of them believed that democracy rested on two pillars, and those pillars were virtue, were, were moral probity, and education. They are absolutely agreed that those are the foundations on which a democracy will rest and that any kind of moral decay, it would be a threat to any nascent republic. So, yes, I mean, those ideas may sound quaint, but they're very much... Funny,
2: i got to mention Boston again. On the one wall of the Boston Public Library, built around 1895 or so, but it says, carved in stone, the Commonwealth requires the education of the people as the safeguard of order and liberty... It's in stone.
1: It's brilliant, right? The literacy rate in Massachusetts is as improbably high as it is even in the 17th century because to pray, you needed to read. And I feel as if that just fundamental faith in literacy and in learning, you know, so much is going to predict what's going to happen over the next 100 or 150 years.
2: i got to give you one more inscription in the Boston Public Library. Facing Copley Square, it says... The public library of the city of Boston, built by the people for the advancement of learning. Let's remember, there is a darker view of Samuel Adams, even among historians, but left over from the, the Tory loyalists, I think, in the 1770s. Your British governor called him the Machiavelli of chaos, sort of the dark master of this network of resistance with the other colonies. He was an incredible correspondent. But also in Boston, he was the puppeteer of street theater, mob action, like the rather scary hanging in effigy of the tax collector Andrew Oliver. That doesn't look perfect on his resume, but as a phrase maker, he was always making the most of things, exaggerating, notably in the street skirmish in a blizzard with British soldiers and Boston people that took five civilian lives. Samuel Adams turned it into the world-famous Boston Massacre, marked in the pavement to this day. Christmas attics and all that. It was five people and one of them, one of the survivors of that so-called massacre pleaded forgiveness for the soldier who who shot him. He was not a fraud. And I still still embrace the man entirely, but-
1: I would say there were a lot of underhanded tactics in the name of high-minded ideals here. Certainly the massacre is a perfect example of him packaging an event and amplifying an event for propaganda reasons. Um, We think he's the person who actually named that March 5th, 1770, the Boston Massacre. We know that he is instrumental in getting Paul Revere to adapt the engraving to reflect their own views of what had happened that night, implicating mm. the customs commissioners who were in town and almost certainly had nothing to do with the Boston Massacre. Um, if you think about the Paul Revere engraving, you have the kind of huddled, martyred right. Bostonians cowering in one corner and these ferocious um, regulars, firing upon them it's not at all the way it happened the regulars were against yeah, a rushing, wall it,
2: they're rushing it all in order it's nothing accidental here
1: exactly and, and the regulars and they're not are not getting snowballs
2: from the from the natives snowballs
1: either. and oyster shells and rocks you don't see any of that in the engraving so it's a very sanitized <laughs> it's a propaganda piece that version and as much as Adams clearly was instrumental in getting his second cousin, John, to try the soldiers, and in fact managed to exonerate most of the soldiers, Adams is deeply invested later on in continuing to remind Bostonians, and for that matter, the rest of the colonies, of the martyrdom that Boston has suffered at the hands of these marauding soldiers. And after the case has been tried, and and his cousin has largely succeeded, Samuel Adams will relitigate the entire affair in column after column Mm. in the Boston newspapers, very often retelling stories that are a little bit far-fetched in order to summon up great compassion for the poor Bostonians.
2: Yeah, it was fascinating to me. The London Review of Books, very high-tone sheet, when your book came out, made a very mischievous link, I thought, between the Boston Massacre, people being hung in effigy, between that and the January sixth, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol in Washington. And again, the arguably dirty tricks of Sam Adams in Boston in the 1770s, the theatrical gallows, the exaggeration of everything. I don't buy the analogy at all, except that it nudges you to look again even at January 6th and say, what is troubling? What does trouble? What, even in the 18th century, troubled this country? And how is it acting out something?
1: The best way to look at this, I think, is to look at Adams's response to Shays' Rebellion. Because there you have Adams taking precisely the opposite side from what you would expect from someone who had encouraged— right.
2: Shays' Rebellion, farmers going broke Rising up against taxes,
1: exactly. Staging an uprising. Adams, the master of street theater, the rest of obstreperous Samuel Adams, comes down very hard on these men and th- feels yeah. that for their actions they should hang. And the explanation is quite simple. He believed that the years of protests which preceded the revolution were protests against a government that did not represent the people and in which they did not participate. Whereas the farmers of Western Massachusetts in the 1780s had a means of redress and that was the ballot box and that was the means that they should use. So Mm. demonstrating against a government in which you participated was an entirely different thing from demonstrating against a government which was deaf to your concerns. Mm. But I also would just go back and say that of those earlier moments of violence in the street, I'm not sure that I would put Adams at the top of the, the list of perpetrators. Certainly Thomas Hutchinson's hmm. home, the pillaging of Hutchinson's house. As much as Adams, I think, had little sympathy for Hutchinson, even as early as 1765, I don't think he's instrumental in that. I think that was just street violence that really got out of hand. Very hard to say.
2: But Stacey, as you keep saying, though, it was hard to know where he was in the planning of these events. He was always in the shadows.
1: He tends toward the shadows for two reasons. First of all, he's diffident by nature, um, which is interesting in someone who's a leader, because leaders tend to be people who gravitate toward the spotlight. And Adams is much more interested in and and eager to propel other people, John Adams, John Hancock, John Quincy, anyone else toward the spotlight while himself remaining in the shadows. And the best instance of that, I think, is late in life when John Adams encourages him to make a collection of his writings, basically says to Samuel, if you were to collect your writings, they would single-handedly explain the revolution and and its Mm -hmm. origins. And Samuel Adams doesn't intend to take credit. He's not really interested in how he's viewed by posterity. He feels the answers to the Supreme Judge and the Supreme Judge alone, and that's sufficient for him. So there's that reason to tend toward the shadows. And um, during much of this time, he's committing sedition. So there's every reason, obviously, to keep the fingerprints to a minimum and to blend into committees and into smoky back rooms, which is where we have to look for him.
2: Can to quote your book and some of the <laughs> wonderful writing in it? Samuel Adams left a great deal of himself in smoky back rooms. But it is clear that he knew precisely which back room to frequent. He also knew that conversations there seldom proceeded without him, and that he connected men whose thinking by the time they left the room converged as well. There's
1: a wonderful account of John Adams coming into Boston um, looking for someone whom he can't find, and he calls on his cousin Samuel, and and Samuel takes him in hand. And John, who's sort of starstruck by his older cousin, they're 13 years apart. Um, it's kind of led by the hand mm-hmm. around town. And suddenly, it's like it's John has like discovered these like secret levers behind behind all the action in Boston. Now he gets it. Now he can see where things are going on. And he's just, you can feel the starstruck quality in, in his writing when he's taken around town by his
2: cousin. You can find precinct politicians in Boston today. We could go to East Boston. We could go almost any place. And there are people like that pointing out all the crannies and nooks of power, influence, churches, bars, anything. Let's come back to the Samuel Adams we embrace, we marvel at. What does it tell you that the Boston Beer Company that wanted to step up the branding of a superior brew called it Samuel Adams? As if to say, step up to what you know is the ideal man, complete American.
1: As I understand it, Jim was looking for a...
2: This is Jim Coke, the, the Jim brewer. Coke.
1: Jim was looking for a, a name that just somehow broadcast America, somehow that was yeah. just fundamentally American. And I do think he thought about John Hancock and decided that Sam Adams made for a better bar call than did John Hancock. <laughs> but it is, I mean, it has it's such a strong name, right? We're not really sure who Sam Adams was. We know he maybe had something to do with the revolution. And he looks like, at least on the bottle, he looks like Paul Revere. And he is vaguely related to John. So he, there's some sort of vague sense that he's there at the origin, if not exactly what he did in those years.
2: I think it's a little more than that. He's an activist, full-bodied, smiling, friendly, available person that you could count on. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful type.
1: Again, I think that John Adams' description is the one. Um, I mean, John Adams, as you know, never minced words. He was never, if there was criticism of any kind that might be leveled, John Adams was very happy to level it. On Samuel's account, he's very clear. This is a, a man who was extremely decorous, very sweet-tempered, very obliging, immensely erudite, patient, affable, not the firebrand whom we hear about in the letters of, say, Thomas Hutchinson or the other crown officials. And I think the patience is here is crucial as well, because Adams, as much as we think of him as a firebrand, is a man who's biding his time, who really knows when the opportunities present themselves, doesn't rush the season, knows, for example, after the Boston massacre, when the town really goes quiet, that he is one of the sole people who's still hammering home these points mm. about American rights and privileges and he's waiting for his moment and fortunately for him you know it's an unforced error from the British side of the equation fortunately for him the occasion arises but he knows that he needs to bide his time for those years.
2: Is there more to say about the social value the political values of Puritan Boston those starchy old Mather
1: You know, I think, to some extent, Adams takes that so much for granted that it doesn't occur to him that isn't going to be part of the fiber of the future America. Hmm. And you see that later in life when there's a certain disillusionment with the way the New Republic is going, where he is hearkening back to those years of, of great piety and realizes that America is rushing headlong into this commercial future. It's embracing luxuries of all kinds, and and Mm -hmm. he's still focused on the kind of, as he puts it, the ancient purity of principles of old New England. And there's a mismatch there between the mind that had hatched so much of this thinking Mm -hmm. and the way the country is barreling forward.
2: Stacey Schiff, for me, the Adams who's endlessly fascinating in your telling is the strategist, man anticipating the future, but the mind reader of a distressed public right in front of his eyes, and the perfect master of timing, a sort of go-for-it energy. But I can't resist asking you to read us today in the 2020s through Sam Adams's eyes, 250 years ago this month after his Boston Tea Party. I want him to read our condition, our viability as a country, as a world power now, a totally different scene, but work with the originalist premise that what the founders intended has to guide us now. That's an arguable idea. But all of these questions he might have spoken about, certainly thought about, right to bear arms, the right to rebel, which the founders wrote about, and reproductive rights, which they didn't. How would he see these transformations in the 2020s? And what would he notice first?
1: Well, you know, in a way, the issues are sort of strikingly similar, surprisingly similar, right? I mean, I we're talking about a moment, first of all, of a tremendous explosion in media, right? And, yeah. and, it, and therefore in thinking because the media is, is moving us. And that is not unanalogous to the world in which Adams first begins to make his mark. So you, you have suddenly this, you know, tremendous explosion in ideas. Secondly, you have a sense that a very narrow elite are controlling the levers of power. Mm -hmm. Um, which in the case obviously of colonial America, they're looking an ocean away for the people who control their lives, but they're also looking, at least in Boston, at the Thomas Hutchinsons of this world. Um, Mm. I think it always pays to remember that when, for example, the East India Company Tea arrives in Boston, it is consigned to six individuals and six individuals, only in those six individuals are two of them the sons of Thomas Hutchinson, two of them the friends of Thomas Hutchinson, and two Mm. of them relatives of Thomas Hutchinson. So that sense that there's a real (laughs) lock on- The deep
2: Hutchinson state.
1: Yeah, but there really is a lock on power there, which, you know, smaller than is the British lock on power, but I think that, in a funny way, unnerves Samuel and John Adams in particular more Hmm. initially than anything else. But that sense that obviously no one is listening and lastly, there is indeed that deafness to people's feelings about, they feel their voices are not being heard, that their rights are not being acknowledged. And that, I think, resonates with us tremendously today. Mm. Does that mean that we should, you know, rush into the streets and destroy private property? I dearly hope not.
2: Yeah, his gift for phrasing is, is always there. You write a marvelous story about after Samuel Adams' first wife died and he married again, his former mother-in-law gave him as a wedding present a household slave, and Samuel Adams responded that a slave cannot live in my house. So he liberated her, and she stayed with him for almost 50 years.
1: You know, I don't think there's a single letter... There are a lot of letters from Philadelphia back to Boston, because he spends a long time in Congress. And I don't think there's a single letter in which Samuel Adams fails to ask, how is Surrey doing, or could you please give my regards to Surrey? He thinks of her in every single letter. So she's clearly a central member of the family. He will in fact hesitate later to ratify the Constitution, and one of the reasons is he thinks there should be a clause outlawing the slave trade. And obviously that is not something that comes to pass, but freedom of the press and the slave trade are two of his objections at
2: that moment. There's a personal touch there in the letter writing. At some point, does he not say, Uh, My idea of happiness is to be reading a letter from my wife.
1: It's an extremely close marriage about which Abigail Adams writes. And Abigail Adams finds it to be one of these relationships that's deeply compassionate, but not not performative in any way. There's nothing ostentatious about the way the two Adamses deal with each other, but they're clearly deeply in love. And he Mm -hmm. treats his wife, the second wife, as was the first, is named Betsy, as an equal partner in the relationship and speaks to her about politics. She shares his misgivings. She shares his allergies to various crown officers. Um, She's dauntless. She's very much like Abigail Adams in that respect, dauntless and tremendously resourceful. And in fact, we think is the only congressional wife during these years who's actually herself supporting the family because of course her husband is penniless. And so when he's in Congress, she is actually doing manual labor to support the family, which is also not an analogy for where we are today.
2: Stacey Schiff, you're the biographer of Cleopatra, also of Vera Nabokov, wife of the supreme novelist, the demon Nabokov. How did you adjust to a story where these interesting women were entirely backstage, often revealing, as you say, in their letters, like the famous Abigail? Remember the ladies, John? Was that not her phrase? But they're also affectionate. They're knowing, like Samuel Addison's own wife. But it's a real shifting of gears for you.
1: Um, It is, although remember, I did write a book about Benjamin Franklin. So there was a little there, although he was in Paris among a lot of women. So perhaps you're right there. Um, I think I divert generally whenever there's a woman remotely on the premises, I divert always to include her in the scene by nature. Um, To the best of my knowledge, there's only one really flirtatious letter in Samuel Adams's hand. And that's a letter... Interestingly, he doesn't write to his own wife, but he writes to Mercy Otis Warren, whom he deeply admires. But I was wife of Joseph Warren, wife of Doctor Warren, exactly. And I was I think relieved to see that he could write a flirtatious letter. So you feel a little protective of your subject that way. The beauty of this book is that we have a lot of Samuel Adams himself, and we also have the other side of the correspondence, the letters that people wrote to him, and those gave me a very good sense of where he stands in the opinions of his fellow Bostonians, in what respect he was held and how they looked to him for leadership. And that was something I hadn't counted on. You always find something you hadn't counted on and you always fail to find something that you had counted on. And the failure in this case was there was evidently a a lovely personal memoir that was written about Adams by his daughter, Hannah. And it was meant to be with Samuel Adams's papers, which are today in the New York Public Library, and it seems to have gone missing. So that family memoir, which I had hoped to rely on for some of the domestic details is, at least for now, not in the archive.
2: Shouldn't we hear the flirtatious letter? The language is, is so deft.
1: So this was July of 1772. Um, and Adams was writing to Mercy Otis Warren. And he wrote that he hoped her husband might be so good as to tell Mercy, and here I'm quoting, that I have all that regard and affection for her which a man, especially a married man, can in conscience have for the wife of another. <laughs> I mean, that's like decorous flirtation, it is. right? It, it-
2: is. Come to what I like most about Samuel Adams, he's a sort of peacenik's dream, in the sense that between the Tea Party in 73 and Concord and Lexington in 75, there's a two-year interval in which he almost wins the whole battle in his letters. Before it gets to war, he has the British authorities in London and in Boston absolutely frazzled and the battles were almost, I won't say anticlimactic, but he'd won it all before a shot had been fired.
1: Well, you're speaking there to what John Adams so brilliantly called the revolution in thinking that preceded the revolution in fighting. Yeah. Right? He has changed hearts and minds. It makes the revolution possible. But when you think about it, I mean, it is absolutely astonishing that the colonies could have gone in... 14 or depending on how you count, 14 or 15 years from spotlessly loyal to stark raving mad as, as the crown saw them. And that is entirely the work of this one you know, extraordinarily idealistic and yet very exploitative as well, I guess politician, if we could call him that, in Boston. Those years are the years really where I think the committees of correspondence do the heavy lifting for him. Yeah, And that's such an unlikely proposition. It was an idea that Adams had had early on is able finally to institute in the fall of 1772 because of a British misstep. And essentially it was just these little cells, these little committees in towns, which were meant to um, articulate the rights and privileges of Americans and broadcast them to each other so that everyone Mm. would be on the same page in terms of potential grievances and everyone would help to protect others from those potential grievances. At first, Thomas Hutchinson, hearing of this snorts with derision, can't think why this idea would be necessary or even attractive, And then over the next weeks, he begins to write back to London Mm. about how suddenly there are 10 committees. Now there are 40 committees. Now there are 80 (laughs) committees. And then, of course, with the Boston Tea Party, with the destruction of the tea, the committees take over. The committees Mm. are, by this time, and this was another great Adams invention, they have essentially kidnapped the government. They are running the Boston Tea Meetings. And it is the committees of correspondence who will all of them respond in unison to Boston's predicament after the Intolerable Acts are passed. So it's really, Adams has wired the colony, the colonies, um, for revolt while no one was really looking because of this sort of anodyne thing called the Committee of Correspondence.
2: Now, this is political genius. Speak of the media. Incredible turbulence, and it was blackout for a while, feisty. Compare it to our world of social media declining newspapers, even declining television.
1: Well, Adams is always quick to. Um, to found or to contribute to a newspaper, but I would say that the greatest influence there in terms of really disseminating a word and getting everyone onto the same page is something he does with the committees of correspondence Mm. where obviously he's writing actively to these committees and he's seeing that these committees write actively to each other and what you see after the Boston Tea Party, after tea has been destroyed in Boston Harbor, nobody's quite sure what the response is going to be. Mm. I mean, is is someone going to be punished? Is the colony going to be punished? How did this actually happen? It's, it's unthinkable that someone has destroyed this private property in the view of thousands of Bostonians, none of whom has seen a thing, and comes back to Boston from all of these towns and hamlets of mostly Massachusetts, some of Maine at that point, is the same phrasing, is a very similar, almost as if it's early Twitter. It's a very (laughs) similar set of similes and analogies. Everyone invokes the same biblical allegories. Adams has orchestrated these towns and villages to all be on the same page, and they respond in language that is very colorful and remarkably similar. And you can read through these, they're in the Boston Committee of Correspondence pages. It's literally as if they are retweeting each other.
2: John Adams wrote later, that the battles of Concord and Lexington on April 1975, he said, transformed the instruments of warfare from the pen to the sword. But the astonishing thing is really that Samuel Adams and his pen had already demoralized the enemy pretty completely.
1: You know, the work was largely done. The problem at that point became unanimity among the colonies. And there too, you see Adams as genius because he arrives at these Congresses having been told throughout the mid-Atlantic states of the disregard in which the New England men are held and how they are seen as being Goths and Vandals, how they are seen as being religious fanatics and people who were very quick to temper And Adams, again, embraces his backroom role. There are a lot of backroom dealings in which he's clearly complicit and manages to hand off to the Virginians all of the essential roles in Congress so that the Massachusetts men, the New England men, don't come off as the hot-headed fanatics which the rest of the colonies had feared they might be.
2: Stacey Schiff, this is a marvelous character, and you've written a marvelous book. Thank you, and and congratulations. I feel I know this man, almost.
1: He's utterly delicious, isn't he? (laughs) He (laughs) Thank you for doing this, Chris, thank you. Great
2: pleasure. Let's go out onto the street in Boston and see if we can find him.
1: (laughs) Well, he's standing over by Faneuil Hall, you know. Fearless and incorruptible.
2: Stacey Schiff's biography of
0: Samuel Adams, now in paperback, is called The Revolutionary. And now for an end-of-the-year pitch for support. Open Source is an independent podcast, which means we count on listeners to sustain our work. If you haven't done so yet, please think of making a contribution. We've made it easy. You can become a paid subscriber to our Substack newsletter or join our Patreon community. For details, visit radioopensource.org slash donate. If this first and still longest running podcast out there has become important to you, Please help keep it going, thank you.